Now at this time, please take your Bible and turn to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. As they're turning there, I'd just like to say welcome again. Merry Christmas. Welcome to our visitors who are visiting from all over the country. I'm encouraged and blessed by your presence. Titus 3. Today the message is entitled, Remembering God's Greatest Gift. From Titus chapter 3. In just a little more than five months from now, how many of you remember what holiday we recognize at that time? Five months away. Close. Memorial Day. Now, that's a day set aside to remember those who've laid down their lives in defense of freedom. It's a national day of remembrance. At least, it's intended to be so. And now you might be wondering, why in the world is this guy talking about a summertime holiday on Sunday, the Lord's Day, which just so happens to also be Christmas Day? Well, it's not because of my patriotism. It's not because I really miss the longer, warmer, drier, sunnier days of the year, which I do. It's because today is a better, more significant Memorial Day. Amen? And as we annually, rightfully remember the sacrifices of our nation's heroes, we also annually remember the single event that accomplished infinitely more than the earthly freedom we enjoy daily. Today we, we, we remember a day that changed the world. A day which we are counting time by. A day which means more to us who believe than any other day in history, perhaps second only to the resurrection. The day when, God, when the God of the universe gave mankind a priceless, awesome gift. That gift was his one and only unique eternal son, Jesus, called the Messiah. Today we remember that. We know the story well, don't we? Not only did Aaron just read it from Luke 2, but we're reminded of the narrative in the Christmas cards we send and receive. We see it on signs on the road. We see it in nativity displays. And we even hear it sung in our favorite Christmas tunes. So we do not lack being reminded annually about the characters and events surrounding the Christmas story. However, I do think we in general lack the spiritual significance of what took place in that cool Bethlehem stable many years ago. And so this Christmas morning, what we're going to focus on is the spiritual significance of the Incarnation. Now, what is most significant about Jesus being born? I would argue that the Scripture is clear. Paul reveals the answer in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. He wrote to Timothy, It is a trustworthy statement. Deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the spiritual significance of Christmas. He came into the world to save sinners, to bring salvation 
to guilty sinners, such as you and I. Should we not remember that on Christmas Day? And not simply the drama or the episode around our Savior's birth? I believe we should. So I want to remind you about the salvation of sinners made possible by God becoming a man. Millions can regurgitate the story, right? Can regurgitate the story. The general population can, from memory, articulate the Christmas tale, and while synchronizing it with another sort of God-like character, right? They can sing uh, Christocentric lyrics like, Hark the herald angels sing. By the way, you guys know what that means? Hark? It means listen, hear this. Hark the herald, herald angels sing. What's a herald? A herald is somebody that goes out in the byways and pronounces with authority a message from the king. That's all angels are. They are simply messengers, servants of God, sent to preach a message from God. So listen to the angels preaching would be the NIV version. How about that? Glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. What does that mean? They can talk about the quote-unquote reason for the season, but could not really have a clue with regard to the significance of God and sinners reconciled. So I want to do my part to make sure that you can be one who really understands the meaning of Christmas. In other words, my goal this morning is simply to direct your thinking to the awesome aspects of the salvation revealed at Christ's coming. In Titus 3, 4 to 7, we find the aspects of our salvation. The aspects that we should be reminded about at Christmas time. And to get the context, let's begin reading in verse 3. And then we're going to zero in on verses 4 and 5 with the time we have this morning, and which will cause us to focus on just three aspects due to our limited time. Turn your attention to Titus 3, verse 3. The word of our God says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, Spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Three aspects of our salvation. These aspects are from God and from God alone. First, what you should remember at Christmas time 
is God's kindness. God's kindness. In verse 4 it says, But when the kindness of our God and Savior... Kindness, defined from the Greek, is genuine goodness and generosity. True Christians worship a God who, by nature, is kind to His children. We must remember that our salvation from sin and lostness and death issued wholly from God's kindness. His loving, generous concern to draw us to himself and redeem us from sin forever. Some may not see it or admit it, but not only is he kind to the elect, he is kind to all. That's what we call common grace. The simple reality that sinners who hate God enjoy the blessings of nature. They enjoy the majestic mountains and the beautiful, serene creation like you and I do. They enjoy the physical pleasure this life has to offer. They enjoy the, the awesome joys of relationships, marriage and children. They enjoy the gift of music. They enjoy the human rights that our government upholds. Those are all clear signs of God's amazing goodness and generosity towards his creation, even those whom refused to worship him. Jesus said of the Father in Luke 6.35, he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. So don't ever buy the lie that God is some kind of mean, brutish ogre, as some atheists or skeptics might have you believe. The scripture reveals that our God is kind, and that's, and that's especially revealed in what? The incarnation. It's noteworthy that Paul attributes God the Father the title of Savior. Look back in your Bible. It is a word that means deliverer, preserver, or one who saves from danger or destruction and brings into a state of prosperity. That's what a Savior is. Savior or Deliverer is a central title for both God the Father and Jesus the Son. On Christmas Day, I can't help but be reminded reminded of what's commonly referred to as Mary's Magnificat in Luke 1, which is simply an outpouring of praise. It's kind of a funny word. We don't use it, but it's typically referred to as the Magnificat, which means outpouring of praise. After having been told by the angel, that she would be the parent of the long-awaited Messiah. Listen to what Mary says. She says, My soul exalts in the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. My Savior. It turns out that Mary was sinful. She needed a Savior, too. Just like you and me. And she viewed her God as the one who could save her from her sins. Not only did Mary have a good theology of who God is, she would have known that Yahweh, from the Old Testament, is slow to anger and abounding in what? 
loving kindness. She would view her son as a manifestation of that loving kindness at his birth. So remember that aspect of your salvation at Christmas time. God's kindness. Our God is by nature generous in heart and good to everyone. The second aspect of your salvation that you should remember at Christmas time is that we're saved by God's love. God's love. Verse 4b. His love for mankind. That phrase translates the compound Greek noun philanthropia, from which we get the English word philanthropy. It's composed of one of two, two Greek words, one being phileo, to have affection for, and anthropos from man, to love men, to be a lover of men. That's who God is. It involves more than mere emotion. Biblical philanthropia finds a way to express itself in some form of helpful action. Which is to say that godly love, true godly love for mankind, doesn't boil down to words. It does not boil down to friendliness. And it definitely does not equal romanticism. Not in the slightest. God does not love you like you love your spouse or your children. His love for sinners is much more profound and deeper than that. His love is 100% pure and unconditional. Our love is often inconsistent and at times driven by self-centeredness. Meaning we only love when there is something to gain. Not so much with God. Having affection for mankind. God loves his creatures. He's eager to help them. By helping them escaping from pain and trouble and danger. Now in what way, specifically or chiefly, does God help mankind? This is an important caveat in understanding God's love. In what way does God show his love? What way does he help sinners? He delivers sinners from the oppression and danger of their iniquity. Here's why this passage is relevant today. Perhaps more than any other day of the year. It was through the incarnation of Jesus Christ that God's love for mankind appeared. The word appeared. It literally means to shine upon. It means to illuminate in. It carries the idea of somebody openly expressing themselves before people. To come forward with a sudden or unexpected appearing like a sudden ray of light illuminates a dark room. This word is often used in Scripture to speak of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God's love and kindness appeared, illuminated, when Christ was born. When Jesus appears on the scene on that night in Bethlehem, 
the epitome of God's love and kindness emerged in the world's darkness. And the light of God was shown to all mankind. That's how you know you serve a kind and loving God. Whenever you have doubts about God's kindness and love for you, because of some circumstance or physical trauma, think of Christ appearing that saved you. Whenever your unbelieving friends scoff you and mock you for trusting in a God who's infinitely kind and loving, think of Christ appearing that saved you. Whenever you find yourself having little more than basic earthly necessities while wicked men live in the lap of luxury, think of the knowledge that you have of the love of God revealed at Christ's coming, which saved you. He's sufficient. He's enough. And when you understand that Jesus Christ is enough, all of the worldly temporal things don't matter so much, right? My little girl came to me last night before bed and said, Dad, what if you got zero presents for Christmas? And I knew that what I was about to say next would totally and completely frame her thinking with regard to the entire Christmas season. Because at that age, they're so moldable, right? They're so teachable. They're, they're, they're like a sponge, right? If I were to say to her, that would just ruin my holiday. That would, that would crush me. What would that be teaching her? I'd be a hypocrite. And I'd be teaching her that Cheap plastic toys are more valuable than the God of the universe. So I said, that would be okay because I have Jesus. That's how you know God loves the world. When you say that God so loved the world, that's what you should be thinking about. That he came and appeared to save sinners. Your salvation should be all you need. And that's what we're reminded about at Christmas time. The third aspect of your salvation that you should remember at Christmas time is that we are saved by God's mercy. Kindness, love, and mercy. I wish I could go through this whole passage today, but I assume you guys want to get home at a reasonable time, so you're welcome. But let's just focus on this last aspect for a few minutes. God's mercy. When you woke up this morning, did you think about God's mercy? Well, if you haven't, now you have. In verse 5, it says, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. Now look at those three words that are so familiar to us. He saved us. What does that mean? When a little child says that Jesus died for my sins and saved me, what does that mean? 
First, we have to establish that. We have to establish the objective meaning, don't we? It's common knowledge that Jesus saves sinners. What does that really mean? Secondly, we need to deal with the very actual eschatological implication of the sentence. He saved us. In other words, he saved us from what? Or shall we instead say, from whom? You ever put it that way? Who did God save us from? Who? Here's another question that we're compelled to wrestle with as we interpret this, this small sentence. Who is the us? Who's the us? Is it everyone? Well, let's start out with the meaning here. The basic meaning of the Greek verb translated save is to preserve safe from danger. To preserve from loss and destruction. To rescue from peril. And to keep alive. How many sinners, unconverted unbelievers, understand that need to be rescued? Do you understand that you have been rescued if you're saved? Rescued from what? We'll get to that. To be saved, it can refer to a physical preservation. You may recall a familiar verse in James 5, since we were just there recently. In James 5, chapter, uh, James 5, verse 15 of James, we read, The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. The word rendered restore is the same word we see in Titus 3, 5. But the word can also, depending on the context, refer to spiritual preservation, spiritual deliverance. In fact, 20 times the reference is used to refer to spiritual salvation, spiritual rescue, deliverance, preservation, or healing. And obviously, we know that that's Paul's intended use, right, in this text? Paul's speaking of spiritually rescuing those who believe. Now, let's deal with the real question. What are we saved from? Since we know that Jesus does not save physically, right? I mean, Jesus didn't come to save us from physical danger. He did not come to rescue us from physical disease. That's a, that's a false doctrine. When we're physically ill or incapacitated... We, when we are in need of healing, there's no question, is there? We know what the problem is. We're easily convinced of the solution. And we think we know where to go to get help. If I went to you and said, sir, ma'am, I can see lumps all over your face. I can see that you're very fatigued. I can see that you're pale. And guess what? I know from experience, it's possible you might have some type of cancer. Please, for everything that is good, go get examined. So you do. You walk into the doctor's office, he takes one look at you and says, yep, you need to go get treatment for cancer. And if you don't, you will die. Now, at that point, would the sick person be like, 
yeah, whatever. I don't believe that. That's just your opinion. No, we don't do that, do we? We drop what we're doing. We rush as quickly as possible to obtain the life-saving, preserving drug, right? So it's easy, it's easy to convince sick people they need help. It's easy to convince sick people where, where, where the cure can be found. But not so much with mankind and their need for spiritual deliverance. The world has no problem with the idea of Jesus offering salvation. But the reason why salvation is necessary is disregarded, rejected, and ignored by the masses. But I love you guys too much to disregard the reason for God saving people. Listen. Jesus saved us, rescued us from justice, from himself. He delivered us from justice. What would be justice? If we were not delivered from this justice... If God were to deal with you and I justly, where would we end up? We would end up in hell, pain for our own sin against the holy God forever. That's what he saved us from. Jesus, the Savior, delivered us because... We have escaped the penalty for our sin. Have you thought about that today? As Aaron prayed this morning, the Christmas story isn't simply about the baby. That's one component of it. Christmas should remind us of God's mercy in saving us from justice. Now, how does he save us? We've been reminded of the clear meaning of salvation, to be rescued. We've been reminded of the significance of that rescuing, that he saved us from justice. But Paul continues, graciously continues, to shed more clarity with regard to how we may partake of this divine rescue mission. In verse 5, we discover a truth that continues to be a stumbling block for religious people. And the true answer to this question is the most pride-crushing, ego-shattering, self-esteem-thieving, humiliating theology ever known. Look at verse 5. It says, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. That is to say, there's nothing we have done, right? There's no good work. There's no charitable act. There's no sacrament that has earned us this spiritual deliverance. To put it another way, as one preacher said, we made no contribution to God's sovereign and gracious work. We did not deserve deliverance from sin and death. We did not deserve to be born again. We did not deserve to become God's children we did not deserve the promise of everlasting life. 
And he's right. We deserve none of those things. We have never, and we never will, ever begin to earn merit with God. We will have nothing to offer, nothing to boast about, and nothing to be proud of. The great Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards said, You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. So we must remember that God's gift of spiritual salvation is not acquired by human effort. And praise God that it's not. Because if it was, you would labor tirelessly and endlessly, having no rest, and you'd be haunted by the lack of assurance. Can you imagine going through life thinking, well, maybe I'll make it if I just try harder, if I just do better? What a miserable and terrifying existence. What a miserable existence it is to know that it is fearful to fall into the hands of the living God, but also be deceived into believing that you can perhaps just maybe, work your way out of God's justice. So if we're not saved by our own deeds, how may we obtain this spiritual rescuing? Well, Paul answers this essential question for us very clearly, crystal clearly, in the middle of verse 5. Not by deeds but according to his mercy. According to his mercy. You don't want justice. You need mercy. Mercy is the outward manifestation of active pity and compassion. Here's another truth that we must consider at Christmas. Not only is it absolutely true that God loves you, is kind to you. It is also absolutely true that he looks at you with pity. He pities you. That's what mercy is. To have pity. And therefore God's pity is extended for the alleviation of the consequences of sin. As God sees a spiritual sick spiritually sick, hurting people. He is moved to awesome pity, which is manifested by an active withholding of judgment. So think of mercy in that way. God's pitiful disposition towards his people displayed in actively restraining his own divine retribution. That's mercy. In some ways, mercy is similar to grace. We usually see it paired up with grace. Grace and mercy which Paul mentions in verse 7. But whereas grace relates to the application of unmerited favor, mercy is the application of that redemptive rescuing from the righteous judgment of God. So when you see mercy in your Bible, think of God withholding 
justice from you. This is why Christmas is such a wonderful Memorial Day. We get to pause and ponder the greatest gift mankind has ever known. And that gift is spiritual salvation revealed in the Incarnation. And as partakers of that spiritual salvation, we should remember that we are saved by God's kindness, God's love, and God's mercy. All of these aspects and more of your salvation are revealed in Christ's appearing. And so as you go home and continue with your family, your your Traditions, keep in mind the spiritual significance of today. Don't just think about the drama of Christmas. Remember that God's greatest gift came in the form of himself. On that night in Bethlehem, he condescended from his heavenly throne to our decaying world. To give light to a dead, darkened people and hope to hopeless souls. And just in closing, since we sung the song, one man who really, truly understood the significance and sheer profundity of Christmas was a man named Charles Wesley, the author of one of the most beloved hymns, Hark the herald angels sing. Listen to the third verse again. And I read this, I'm going to read it slow because I think when we sing, we're oftentimes distracted by the sweetness of the music. But, But the songs we sing in worship are intended to stimulate your mind. Hail the heaven born Prince of Peace. Hail, the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lay his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. A lot of doctrine in that verse. None of that would ever be dreamed of if it wasn't for God's kindness, His love, and His mercy. So if you don't feel like proclaiming glory to the King, perhaps you've forgotten the significance of God's greatest gift. And need to be reminded today. May the kindness, love, and mercy of God the Father be on the forefront of our mind today as you celebrate the wonderful appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the greatest gift. ever known 
thank you that you are a God of kindness, of charity and goodness. Thank you that your love is pure and that you desire to rescue us. Thank you for delivering us from justice. Thank you for extending to us mercy. Thank you for alleviating the judgment that is rightfully due to us. May this Christmas season remind us of these things. May we be forever grateful and infinitely more grateful than any earthly or temporal pleasure. May we see you as as sufficient, not viewing ourselves as in want for any other gift because we have the sufficient, priceless gift of salvation. May we repent from not thinking this way. May you convict us of our materialism and selfishness and idolatry. May we turn to you and worship you with clean hands and a pure heart, even today, Lord. In Jesus' loving and kind name,